Hey, this is Mark Raven from Kinexus. Welcome to episode number eight of our series called Ask Us Anything. And this is Greg Jacobson, also from Kinexus. Really looking forward to doing this batch of questions, Mark. Yeah, so let's get right into it. Um, starting off with something that's in sort of the anything side of Ask Us Anything, at least real quickly, who are you rooting for in the NBA Finals, the Cavs or the Warriors, Greg? Yeah, to be really honest, I just wanted a good game, and I thought we had a good game until the end when it just seemed like it became hero ball instead of um, people playing team ball. And uh, it's funny, it resulted, I think, in not as good a basketball. Yeah, at least it was a close finish. I mean, I, I was rooting for the Warriors partly out of loyalty to the Western Conference. Greg and I are both Spurs fans, so we would prefer to be rooting for the Spurs, but yeah. I thought the Spurs had a good chance in Game 7, um, but you know, they always have a good chance. So. Coming back from two series down, yeah. <laughs> well, all right, so maybe more on topic here. Um, questions about lean and continuous improvement. Here's a question from Louise. Um, nowadays, what are the ultimate challenges to have a successful lean journey? I've seen many companies only using the tools, uh, but when I ask them why they perform lean, they say just to eliminate waste. So I, I think there's a couple, couple parts of that question, or at least a couple things to dig into. Let, let me touch first on um, maybe just the uh, the idea of a lean journey. You know, lean principles or methods. It, it, it's often I think something that seems easy to understand, but you know, learn, getting awareness about lean, learning about lean doesn't mean that it's easy to change an organization, to transform a culture, right Greg? Absolutely. It, it, it's a very broad question, right? I mean, because what are the ultimate challenges? I mean, probably if I had to take it down to one challenge, I mean, you know, changing the hearts and minds of, of everyone in the organization. What are your thoughts about that, Mark? Yeah, you know, changing the culture, you know, changes. I think means changing the way everyone does things around here. That includes not just the frontline employees, the people doing the work. It means leaders at all levels. That's I think the ultimate challenge. It's um, I think there's an interesting challenge where the higher you get up in an organization, generally the more decades of experience you have doing things the old traditional way. That, that makes it even more difficult for individuals, I think, at the um, executive level to change. Now, I'm not making excuses for them. I'm just saying I think it's part of what makes it the ultimate challenge. And at the end of the day, what every successful organization has is they have successful leadership, they have successful methodology, and they have successful technology. And, and by, by leadership, we mean all levels of the leader, right? Whether that's senior leaders, middle management, or even you know, local team leaders. And by methodology, that could be all types of methodology, whether it's using you know, A3s or projects or events. Um, and by technology, we mean all kinds of technology. Um, obviously, on the one end, we, we have kind of access, but on the other end of that spectrum, even paper is a technology. So. Um, you just need to make sure you're getting those three components right. And, and those three components, obviously, the larger the transformation, the, the more robust each one of those components needs to be. And, um, but even in a small local hotspot of an organization, you're going to find those three things being done really well. Yeah. And it's probably not real controversial to say lean 
is more than tools, that lean is not just tools, as uh, Louise was asking. But, I mean, I think, you know, more interesting discussion is, you know, is lean all about reducing waste? I would argue that reducing waste is important, but we also need to make sure that we understand value to the customer and try to figure out how we deliver um, the right value. And I think the risk of focusing too much on waste reduction is that it, it focuses on eliminating. And it's good to eliminate waste, but we want to make sure we don't lose sight of um, what the customer really needs. Sometimes we have to be creative and innovative and come up with new ways of delivering value, reinventing an approach instead of just incrementally reducing waste from our process. And, and, and probably going to in some way relate, Mark, as you're, as you're talking and thinking, depends on where you are in your journey, right? I think it, the earlier you are in a journey, the, the more I would just try to keep it simple. And if eliminating waste is the way to keep it simple, well, then to focus on that. I, I think the the mistake would be is if your journey only includes that and, and never starts to become more complex. But certainly at the beginning with the principle of keep it simple, stupid, we would uh, we would give a thumbs up for anyone that's doing that. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Right. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next question. Uh, question from Sumit. How is the deployment approach different for a transformational change versus an incremental change? So I guess that's a good segue from this last question. We touched on the need to continuously improve and, and the need to reinvent. Greg, do you want to tackle no, well, this one? I'll I'd like to hear your kind of initial take on it. I've got a couple different directions to take this, but. Well, I mean, I think to me, incremental change lends itself to be much more staff driven, to ask people to identify waste or opportunities, identify things they want to do differently to test and implement and evaluate those changes. I think incremental improvement by its nature, tends to be and needs to be much more bottom-up driven. I think transformational change tends to be driven because it is a bigger change. It requires more time, more effort, potentially more investment to transform or reinvent something. I think that transformational change tends to be driven in a more top-down way where executives are looking at strategic goals and objectives and needs of the organization. And that's helping prioritize, you know, maybe a few of those critical few transformational changes that we're going to take on this year. Right. And I'm going to flip the question a little bit on its head. Um, and uh, there's this element of almost like a, a higher level to the question. How would you do a transformational change of an organization? versus doing an incremental change of an organization from a from a, an improvement deployment standpoint, if you will. And I, I would argue that if you if you take a microscope to transfer transformational change, it probably looks incremental. Mm -hmm. um, only when you kind of go back out to the sixty thousand foot view can can you really see, oh wow, we we've really transformed our organization from from one that, you know, elicits fear and um, doesn't put the customer at the center of the equation to one that puts the customer at the center of the equation and you know elicits uh, you know the warm fuzzy if you will and uh, in order to really do that though there's probably a thousand or tens of thousands of 
of tiny little steps to move there. And so kind of like death by a thousand paper cuts, if you will, just the positive way to say that. So um, my, my take would probably be that they're, that they're, they're just simply the same thing. It just depends on what view you're looking at. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I see more um, more differences where I think, you know, one other, there, there's some things that are similar, I, I think similar themes, but like, you know, in my mind, incremental change lends itself to rapid cycle experimentation. Try something, see if it works. If yes, keep going. If not, go back, try something else. Transformational change tends to be bigger and riskier, and I think that's where in the plan, do, study, adjust cycle, you t tend to have far more planning, but then you come up with ways of iterating a design, whether it's for software or uh, a new building or a new tower, let's say in a hospital or a new factory, you're going to want to use simulation. You're going to use computer simulation. You're going to use mathematical analysis. You're going to use um, in life, three-dimensional simulations, cardboard layouts, and um, you, you, transformational changes are riskier, but I think you try to mitigate that risk by learning lessons from smaller change, trying to make it as incremental as you can, but nobody says, oh, let's just build a building and see if it works. I mean, that's too expensive, too slow, um, something that's not going to give you a, a second chance to try again, probably. It, in, in, on a somewhat related, but slightly off-topic thought, I, I think if, if you can easily undo something, then that really lends itself to doing a quick experiment. Right. right. If, if you can't easily undo something, it, it probably lends to, okay, well, we should certainly plan a little bit more and, and really figure it out. And building a building is a great, great example. You know? I guess the question is, is how, can you, how can you break things that, that are seemingly big into small enough chunks that could be easily undone? Mm -hmm. The cardboard model, for instance, on a building or... We were, and a little shout out to the Lean, um, to the Lean Summit that we were just at last week. Right. There was a uh, architecture firm that had these 3D virtual glasses. I think that's a great way to explore a um, design without having to, you know, put the two by fours and, and nails up, and, and, and can probably do a lot of rapid iteration. Um, type work with a piece of technology like that. Did, did you try those on? I got busy and I didn't get back over there, the virtual reality glasses. It was amazing. It was unbelievable. I think I hadn't put on virtual reality um, technology in in quite some time. And uh, I, I think where we're at, I can see why people say that's the future um, of a lot of technology moving in that direction because um, you really felt like you were in the space. Um, there was a, just a, a slight bit of a nausea going on, um, but I'm, I'm really sensitive to motion and things like that, but um, it really felt, it was compelling, compelling technology. I think we're going to be able, and we're going to see a lot more, I could imagine training pilots that way, even beyond the kind of, they have a lot of simulation. Well, pilots, now. yeah, pilots have, I think, for a long time done simulation. Yeah. Right, but imagine that simulation just kind of being right there in your face. Um, yeah. Anyway. Side, side, side question. Um, there's a lot of people in healthcare now, often in academic medical settings, that have healthcare simulators, patient simulators, uh, more of a real-world physical simulation. Right. Um, have, have you participated in any of that? They were just starting to work with that stuff when I was in residency, which, you know, 01 to 04, and the 
they were just starting to go into that where you know the mannequin wasn't just a mannequin, but actually there was some data feedback going on, and you were simulating a code, but you know the monitor was changing, and you would you know pretend to give medications and see that. And so I imagine that that has really taken off in the last you know yeah. dozen or so years since I've I've seen what's going on there. Okay, well let's move on to the next question. Um, this question, um, I'll make sure we're not getting anyone in. That's uh, probably not too troublesome of a question. We'll just say it's from Canada. I won't say who or from what province. It could be anywhere, and it might not be uh, just government. But the question says to influence change in a hierarchical organization like government. So I guess there we could say like hospitals, like businesses. Um, here's the important part of the question, I think, though. Where in the org chart should the continuous improvement team sit? Um, I, I have some very strong opinions about this, and, and, and I think it comes from seeing organizations that have been most successful with Lean, where the head of, where they call it a continuous improvement office, the Kaizen promotion office, the Lean promotion office, that office basically reports right to uh, the executive team. And I, and I think you know it's important to have a seat at the table. Oh, Greg, we're getting some echoes here. I'm going to go off and on and see if that... Okay, I'll keep babbling while Greg does that. Sorry while we pull the and on cord. Um, I think you know if lean or continuous improvement gets delegated too far down in the organization, it sends a signal that it's just not that important, that it's not that strategic. So I think you know to have a you know even you know a VP level of performance improvement, if they're not directly reporting to the COO uh, or the CEO, they they should have a seat at the table in executive reviews. I think they should be a de facto member of the executive team, if, if I'm using the term right. If they're not formally on the executive team, I think they should be. I'm gonna give a funny answer and then a real um, analogy. The funny answer is they should sit in the gimba. You see Most what I mean? Well, sure. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, right. so we're, we're not saying where their office should be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just I couldn't help myself. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, the, 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 the analogy I look at is emergency medicine as a specialty is actually one of the, the youngest specialties in medicine. In fact, Prior to 1977, there was no such thing as a emergency medicine doctor. I mean, people would moonlight in the emergency room. If uh, they, most people would go see their own patients when they presented to the emergency room. It, it was only, a branch of surgery, wasn't it? Well, and so, so it, only about 1980s did they start kind of producing in numbers. But probably 1980, there, there may have been, I don't know, 20 or. 50 emergency medicine doctors, but initially emergency departments actually sat under um, the surgical department, and so um, that, that what it ended up creating though was um, a very particular brand of emergency medicine. Number one, but number two, it it became not its own you know independent thought leader in a medical center, but kind of. Um, subservient to you know whatever the surgeon's whims were and, and and what you ended up seeing throughout the 80s and 90s is the emergency departments getting taken out of being underneath the surgical departments and becoming their own department um, and kind of coming to and so I think that, that that's a, a really great analogy that if, if you're really going to um, enact 
change and, and really have a, a big influence in an organization, the more directly and the closer you can be sitting and reporting and or a part of the, um, the C-suite, if you will, the, the better off that department's going to be. And I think, you know, there's another question unasked here is the role of that continuous improvement team over time. I, I think as we move from lean or continuous improvement, starting off inevitably as a program with specific ownership, and I think, again, that ownership really comes from the CEO with, you know, somebody you know, having daily responsibility for it. Um, over time, hopefully it becomes more of just how we manage around here, the way we do things around here. So the, the role of a central group may change, the size of it may physically shrink, but I think even at Toyota, Toyota, which arguably, as much as anybody would say, this is just the way we do things around here, Toyota still has a central team that sort of maintains standards uh, for training and sort of maintaining the source of what the Toyota production system is. So, um, you know, that, that team, you know, continuous improvement team certainly shouldn't be driving all improvement themselves, but I think they play the role of helping build the culture, build um, capabilities in the organization. And over, over time, like any even outside consultant like myself, you better work your way out of a role, otherwise you're not really accomplishing anything. Right, right. No. Kind of hearing our conversation leads me, once again, I'm going to kind of go a little off topic, but related. Um, we've, we've now had the opportunity, Mark, at Canex to work with, you know, let's say upwards of 50, 60 companies, and we've learned a ton um, with these companies. And, and one of the things that I, I recall about a year or two ago, we were working with one of our customers who was really struggling kind of getting the, the ball moving, um, starting the initial effort, sustaining the initial effort. Small company, 150 employees, and we we all kind of step back and realize, you know, there's actually not a Kaizen promotion office or or a single individual that was responsible for doing continuous improvement. And uh, in the larger kind of organization, it'd be like, oh well, if you have a 10,000 person organization, you having an office that's responsible for standards, like you were saying with Toyota. Um, you find it being a critical thing for organizations that are going to be successful with this type of work. And so uh, it was just a, a really kind of eye-opening because you always think, oh, well, everyone should be responsible for improvement. And, and that's 100% true. The, that office or that person in a smaller organization isn't doing the improvement work. What they're doing is they're enabling other people to do the improvement work. But um, I'm, I'm happy to report that customer has uh, has actually hired a continuous improvement um, person to help really kind of be the drive. To kind of I imagine them like holding the little flag and kind of walking in, touring, saying, "Come on, let's go. We're going to do it this way." And so I think that's a, a really exciting um, kind of observation that I think doesn't really matter the size of the organization. Having someone that that's what they're thinking about and what they're doing. 24/7 is uh, is a critical component, uh, but of course, making sure that they're not doing the improvement work, but they're enabling the improvement. Yeah, right. yeah, and it makes me think of a related um, quote from W. Edwards Deming that sometimes gets thrown around, maybe a bit inappropriately. You know, people will quote Deming and saying, "You know, quality is everyone's responsibility." Like, well, it is, but Deming also said, 
quality starts in the boardroom. And if you don't have the right executive mindsets, if you don't have the right culture and structure and systems for quality, you can't just tell everyone, hey, you're responsible for quality if they're trying to do bad, good work in a bad system. So right. I think we have to be careful. We, we can't just dump responsibility on staff, but executives aren't going to do it all themselves. It requires balance and everyone working together. And I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm once again going to just take it and kind of sidestep and keep going with this because I think we could probably banter on this a, a lot. But, you know, in, in my kind of view um, of, of the observations I've made with organizations that are doing this really well, so let's say there's a um, 1 to 500 or 1 to 1,000, it doesn't really matter what the number is, um, people that are focused on improvement compared to employees. The, the other thing is, and, and they're enabling, we're using that term, they're enabling improvement to happen. What we also find is in every location or department, there are some people that are going to really be kind of the local spokesperson. So I can, it's kind of like the, the continuous improvement specialist, if you will, is coaching a local leader, and that leader is really helping to enable the improvement to happen. So in many ways, my joke wasn't completely um, off base by saying they should be in the Gemba because there really should be kind of you know, improvement experts spread all throughout every department um, that are really working intimately with the, the continuous improvement experts. So. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, let's move on to another question, a question cool. from uh, Ram who asked, what's the best means of assessing employee engagement levels in organizations that are holding dominant market share in the industry and hence not under pressure from competition? Um, I, at least to me, I, again, I think it's one of these questions where it's being asked about a very specific situation, but I think it's much more um, broadly applicable. Um, let, me, let me talk about assessing employee engagement levels. You know, to me, I think the single best measure is the number of implemented improvement ideas per person per per month or per year. I think that right there is a measure. Um, you could do surveys, you could do other other things, but um, if you've created an environment where people can participate in, in, in improvement and then they choose to do so, that's a sign of um, engagement, empowerment, all sorts of positive things that um, are gonna lead to either continued success, even if you're already dominant in a market, or if you're trying to play catch up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take um, a, um, the angle because I think what you said is spot on, Mark. But I'm gonna talk a little bit about Kinexus in our engagement reports because I think that kind of helps, kind of frame the conversation of how we think through engagement. So in Kinexus, we offer a couple different things. We offer um, exactly what Mark said: how many improvements. Um, have been implemented um, in a location, department, whole organization per unit time. So we, we track that annualized number. We love to see that number above two. We have some organizations that are, you know, even above 10. Um, we also provide insight into um, uh, how is the actual improvement work getting done. So what do I mean by that? What's a, if we're only looking at a metric of, let's say you have two 100-person organizations, and one organization completed 200 improvements in the year, and organization A and organization B completed 100 improvements a year. But if you actually look at the data in organization A, those 200 improvements were completed by, let's say, five people. 
versus if you look at organization B, those were actually completed by 90 of the 100 people. So they had a 90% participation rate. So I would argue that the culture of improvement A is a healthier culture than the culture of improvement B because if you lose one of those five people, you're going to drastically reduce the um, number of improvements, number one. But number two, you're not getting the benefit of the other 95 people in the 95% of the organization actually engaging because there's there's intangible benefits um, that 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 are even beyond just how many improvements have you completed. We know that people that engage in improvement actually are happier people and happier people end up interacting with happier customers. And so there's a whole bunch of intangibles there. And so we actually help break that down. I mean, with what percent of your organization or even in a location is engaging with improvement work. And, and you can even get more um, detailed than that because you can say, okay, well, where is it originating from? Who's actually completing the work? Where is it impacting? And uh, I think it's just a great place where Kinexis can add a ton of value to a continuous improvement team. So if they're looking at this big array of, of places that they need to influence, they can immediately go in and go, okay, Department A is doing great, not spending any time there. Department B is having a big struggle. Let me go over there and spend my time there. So. Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to imply that the average overall number is the only thing that matters. But, yeah, you have no, to look more, we're you have to look more specifically. Yeah, because yeah. you know, variation matters, too. Like you said, yeah. you don't want five people doing all of the improvement, having that skew the average per employee. I would also want to look and see what percentage of employees are participating Sure. Um, like you said, using reports to break it down. When I look at what our customers are doing and what clients of mine are doing, reports like that are incredibly, incredibly helpful. And, and I wasn't suggesting. I mean, you answer the question. If there's just one number, that's it. It would be like if you want to know one number on on how did a basketball team do last night, it, it would be the score, right? Right. But you know, how, okay, how do we refine understanding what the score is? How could it have been better? Okay, well, we need to start getting into the player stats and how many rebounds and how many blocks and you know so the 100% agree though that the that the metric you you pointed out as a single metric is the one to to to, to look at so yeah okay um, another question here from Lena a different part of Canada actually if your department is spending 90% of its time quote unquote keeping the lights on how do you start a continuous improvement culture so you can reduce it to 80% um, Thanks, Lena, for the question. I, I would say, gosh, if you're only spending if you're only spending 90% on keeping the lights on, that's pretty good. That gives you a lot of time uh, for Kaizen for continuous improvement. The problem I see is organizations and individuals are stretched to 110% of capacity, and therefore they would say we don't have any time for improvement. Um, I think regardless of the starting point. I think this is the. Uh, I think it speaks to the power of starting small, of um, getting people started with small improvements that don't take a lot of time. Get the ball rolling, free up a little bit of time, so you can hopefully do more improvement. I think for a lot of people, they would they would think it's a luxury uh, to have a starting point of 10% continuous improvement time. You know, I, I I would look at it and say I don't know what the right percentage is. I don't know if 80% direct work, 20% continuous improvement is uh, the right ratio or if there's any magic number there. I think it depends on how many problems are still out there and there's going to be problems, but like, you know, how many pressing business challenges are out there and trying to find that balance between doing quote unquote 
real work, value-added work, versus doing uh, improvement work. Um, like if I ask the people at, I think, of a couple of really good organizations with continuous improvement cultures, and you ask them, how much time do you spend on improvement? They all say, I, I don't know. They don't know if it's 10% or 14%. Um, it, it just becomes so ingrained in how they're doing things, it becomes really hard to even kind of measure it if you wanted to. Right. So there's probably industry influences here. There's also in the journey of the company. I mean, take a look at you know a startup with Kinexus. I would say very, very early on, 90% of the stuff we were doing was actually just improving what we were doing. And now it's probably 50% because we actually have a bunch of customers that that's kind of part of the work now. And um, so I think if you if you're obviously doing if you're flipping it, let's just say you're doing 90% continuous improvement and 10% um, actual work, you, you probably aren't going to be around as a company very long because you're you're not doing enough of providing value to customers um, unless you have some bizarre kind of uh, you know um, um, product. But um, the uh, the other thing I was thinking about when when you were talking about that also is is, is keep in mind that that. The level of the person in the organization will also influence what, what they're doing. And I think um, Mizaki Amai's um, graph that, that John Shook actually had up on the um, his his keynote um, last week at the, at the summit um, really kind of gives a, a, a little bit of insight into at least a framework. He was, he was kind of picking it apart a little bit. But um, it gives a framework that there's going to be different people at organizations that are going to do different percent uh, time related to continuous improvement. And um, and then I'm gonna my my last point to this is is gonna once again I'm gonna flip the question on its head a little bit, but and and go back to what you started with uh, talking about small changes and, and starting out really small. But I would highly recommend everyone to if you don't know the power of habit by um, I always uh, mispronounce his last name Charles uh, Duhigg D U H I G G then um, you should certainly take a look at that book. I think there's a really a profound body of knowledge there that can be applied to how you can teach your organization to do improvement work and make that a habit. But the, you know, the, the, the book can be described in, in one sentence. Um, it can't be described in one sentence. If I was forced to describe it in one sentence, then I would describe the, the power of the, the habit loop, which talks about uh, there's a cue there's a routine and there's a benefit. And, and that's why daily huddles or weekly huddles work because, okay, the queue is 9 a.m. The routine is we're going to talk about our improvement work and the benefit is we're going to get the benefit of actually completing some improvement. And, that, and that's what's actually going to create this kind of cycle and, and give that kind of ingrained nature to your organization. And that can be done to, and literally, we, we, how many organizations did we talk to last week? How long does your daily huddle take? Some people said two minutes. Some people said ten minutes. No one said five hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, let, as we start to wrap up here, a couple questions I think we're going to address real quickly um, on our way out the door here. One question from Merrily, which I'm just going to answer by giving a reference. Um, the question asks, what is the most effective way to implement a daily lean management system? And for that, I would recommend I'll post a link here. Um, for those watching live in the chat box, um, a webinar that was done by Michael Lombard back in April called A Lean Management System Supported by Kinexus. If you go to our webinar on-demand library, 
uh, and, and look for that webinar. I think you'll get a lot of uh, great thoughts from Michael. Um, I know that's a really short way of answering that question, but um, it's uh, a, lot of, a lot of great lessons there. It's about management systems with Kinexus. Um, it all goes hand in hand. It's not about specifically a management system um, only if you have Kinexus. We want you to use Kinexus, of course, because there are a lot of great thoughts in there even if you're not at that point yet. And the last question here um, from Anastasia, does lean drive supply chain excellence? Uh, I, the short answer is yes. I think it depends on the needs of your organization. If you look at manufacturing supply chains, healthcare supply chains, there are a lot of lean principles on the basic level um, continuous improvement, working towards smaller batch sizes and improving flow, level loading your work and operations, trying to reduce transportation distance by having you know, suppliers located as close to your factory as you can. And I think you know, the final point I would make if you know, with lean and continuous improvement, we talk about respect for people and engaging people. A lean supply chain involves respect for suppliers and engaging suppliers as a partner instead of someone you're just sort of uh, bullying or bossing around. So th those are my um, quick thoughts on lean supply chain. I, I can't believe that 30 minutes has gone by so quickly, Mark. You said we're, we're wrapping up with the time, and I looked up and I was like, oh my gosh, it's these are always just so much fun to do in general. Um, love the love the questions. And which episode was this for us? Number number eight. eight. Number we'll eight. Number nine. Sometime in July. Sounds great. Looking forward we, to it. We encourage you. We we had a bit of a glitch in the sign up this time. Um, we're still working off of a backlog of questions, but we encourage people to submit questions uh, via the kinexus.com website. When you see the, the sign up for um, the Ask Us Anything webinars, you can always email mark at kinexus.com or you can email greg at kinexus.com if you have a question you want us to throw into a future Ask Us Anything. Um, so again, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Um, I'm Mark Graven, uh, VP of Improvement in innovation services for Kinexus. Thanks for joining us today. Greg, you get the last word. And this is Greg Jacobson, CEO and one of the, the co-founders. And I always like to remind everybody that you know, the work that they're doing with improvement work in their organization is it matters. It's really important. And there's no better time than today to, to start doing that. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys.